Today is not much about us. We've invited a very distinguished panel for you to meet and uh, listen to, and hopefully we'll have time for questions. But just real quickly on us, um, and if you have time at the end, I'm happy to talk more about our organization. But when this fight uh, has taken a very unique approach to fighting human trafficking, which is by, like we say, going after the head of the snake. So we are going after the money that enables this absolutely horrific scrooge. And of course, it's a very big enterprise, so we have to go at it from all different angles. This is one of the angles that we are going with, but obviously we're working with other organizations. So without uh, any more delay, I do want to introduce you to our very distinguished panel. I'm so happy to... Um, Announce and hopefully they're on here because I can't see the Zoom screen. So um, I'll start introducing them in no particular order. The, our first panelist, Sir Richard Hawkes, who is the CEO of British Asian Trust, which is a charity founded by the Prince of Wales, who, as we all know, is the future King of England, Prince Charles. Now, this foundation is very close to my heart personally because of all the work that they are doing in South Asia. That's where I grew up. And uh, I saw firsthand how, how a huge amount of population and poverty makes that area a hotbed for human trafficking, which is why I'm personally very grateful to organizations like British Asian Trust and the work they're doing on the ground there. And we um, really look forward to speaking with them more. And another thing very interesting that I like what they're doing is they have created vehicles for uh Asian philanthropists and philanthropists from UK to identify grassroots initiatives to work with in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. So, Richard, thank you and welcome. I I can't see you, but I'm sure at the moment you start talking, I will see you. And let me introduce our other panelists as well. Ambassador Louis DeBaca, who is a lawyer and a diplomat, and was um, uh, who served under the Obama administration. Uh, as ambassador at large to monitor and combat trafficking in persons. Also worked with the Department of Justice in the similar area as well. So we're looking forward to speaking with them. Our third panelist, um, Dr. Chris White, we just learned, is not able to join us. Um, so hopefully in another time he will be here because he's done a lot of work on the ground in Afghanistan when he worked with DARPA. So we miss him, but a part of me is selfishly grateful because I have so many questions for our two panelists that I was afraid we'll run out of time. Mm-hmm. So with that, we'll get started. I do see Richard. I will start with you. I don't know if you're able to see me or you see a tiny version of me somewhere here. I can hear so, you. Um, can you hear me? Welcome. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Thank you. So I'll, I'll start with you, Richard. Now, you are, there are a lot of people on Zoom from all over the world, but still primarily it's an American audience here. So could you talk to us a little about who is British Asian Trust? What is your focus? Why were you created? Yes, of course. Well, first of all, thank you very much indeed for inviting me to join you today. Um, incidentally, I was actually in the States the day before yesterday, I, I was there for a week last week in Texas visiting my daughter who's, who's studying, um, at the University of Texas in Austin. So I, I should have got my, my timings more coordinated and stopped 
stopped off in in New York with you on the way back, and then I could have been with you in person. Um, but anyway, I'm very glad to be joining you in in this way. Um, Jasper, thank you very much indeed for that that introduction. Just to to explain, uh, as you said, I'm the chief executive of the British Asian Trust. Um, we were established about 13 years ago by a combination of, as you said, His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, who came together with some of the leading figures from the, the South Asian community in the UK. Um, in the UK, when we talk about South Asia, we mean the Indian subcontinent. So India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Um, and there are a, a, a many uh, three million British Asians, so three million people in the UK um, who, whose heritage is from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. And the Prince of Wales came together with leaders from those communities, some of the, the, the top business leaders and celebrities, to create the British Asian Trust. The, the intention being that this would be a, a British Asian diaspora-led organisation. So all of our trustees, our advisory councils and so on are made up of people from, from the community. Uh, to galvanise the wider diaspora community to address poverty and inequality across South Asia. So to, to identify the issues um, that, um, what, what, that, that, that the diaspora and, and wider uh, South Asians could get involved in through us as a vehicle to address um, whether that was about um, anti-trafficking, mental health, education, livelihoods, uh, and we recently started working in conservation as well. So our work is um, in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh mainly. We have some programs in, in Sri Lanka. And the, the one other thing I'd say is that, um, as I'm sure many of you will know, if you, if you know any um, South Asian origin entrepreneurs, business leaders, and so on, they're, they're the people that have set the culture of our organization, it, it, which means that, it is constantly about scale, about innovation, about cost effectiveness, about getting the absolute um, maximum of every pound that can be given. We're a charitable organisation, but we, we operate in a, in a fairly ruthless way where we're absolutely focused on outcomes and impact, uh, on, on keeping costs to an absolute minimum, and uh, really using innovative approaches like development impact bonds and other forms of impact investing so as to make the biggest possible impact that we can across that South Asian region. Um, Jaspreet, if you're saying anything, okay. I can't hear you. Oh, sorry about that. Richard, uh, thank you for that. And I'm really glad you mentioned about impact and measurement because yesterday in our audience a lot of people are talking about are you measuring impact so thank you so much for bringing that up and thank you also mentioning the word that we even though it's a non-profit foundation you're working at it you're looking at it literally like running a business ruthlessly because you want results totally. I think that is really what a lot of people in the here non-profits a lot of people are really tired of that because many times they just exist and nothing goes on. And so it's really refreshing to hear that because even for our perspective, we are looking to say, how do we function really like a business, almost like a startup ruthlessly that we need to make, a, make things happen. So thank you for that. I'll switch to um, 
Ambassador uh, DeBaka, thank you so much for being here. Uh, now, you've worked in some very prominent organizations, Department of Justice, Department of State, you're ambassador at large in the human trafficking space. Um, I'm curious to understand, I'm sure audience as well, is um, how does the role differ? Meaning, if you're a DOJ, what lens is DOJ looking at trafficking from as opposed to uh, the State Department or as opposed to when you were ambassador at large? I mean, what's in the purview? And also, in your opinion, which one did you think made the most impact? Or I'm sure it was a different impact, but if you had to pick. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things, Jasper, that's so important um, when thinking about the problem of human trafficking, um, when thinking about the, the problem of, of modern slavery, whatever we're going to call it, um, there's so many labels, um, is that uh, this problem has only ever been addressed successfully um, when it's being attacked from a multifaceted direction. Um, part of that is because it manifests itself so differently in different places. It could be um, brick kiln operators on the, in northern India. It could be um, artisanal mining um, with children uh, in uh, parts of Africa that's going into the technology. Um, the computers and cell phones that, that we all have with us today um, very probably have uh, some slave-made um, sourcing as far as uh, the coal tan, tantalum, etc., uh, that makes them uh, be able to work. It also, um, though, uh, manifests itself in local um, enslaved prostitution or child prostitution cases. Um, and in the United States, it, it I think, um, often ends up impacting itself on vulnerable communities, um, whether those are vulnerable because of immigration status, um, because of race and ethnicity, uh, because of gender um, or because of mental health. So I was so happy to see uh, that today's uh, kind of entire um, morning is going to be focused on a lot of those different things because those are um, often um, the drivers of human trafficking. I think as far as the U.S. government or any government for that matter, you know, what we've seen is that you have to have a holistic approach. A lot of governments about 20 years ago when the United Nations uh, updated uh, the anti-slavery treaty with the what's called the Palermo Protocol, um, the trafficking protocol. A lot of governments uh, ran out and had their interior ministry or home ministries um, assigned to it, and they reacted exactly the way that uh, a law enforcement branch would. Um, they thought a lot about uh, border security. They thought a lot of about who was there and who wasn't. And for the longest time, even in our discussions with the UK. Um, you know, you'd have people saying, oh, well, you know, we're looking out for, you know, the, you know, Russian models who are being brought in for prostitution. And it wasn't really until the cockle pickers, uh, died at, at Morecambe Bay when the tide came in, uh, killing 19 uh, Chinese workers that it kind of opened up the, the, uh, British, uh, understanding that you can't just be looking outside. You have to look at your own situations. And in the United States, that's agriculture. That's um, building, uh, that's uh, everything around us, uh, really, when it comes down to it. If there are vulnerable people who are uh, not being served uh, by the communities. So the answer to your question, in some ways, is that everybody has to, to be bringing to it. I, it wasn't until we were able to bring in the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Education Department, um, you know, until we were able to bring everybody together like that, 
start thinking of it with a development lens, to start thinking of it with a social service lens. Um, you know, we were just chasing the bad guys. Um, and we still have to chase the bad guys and we still have to put them out of business. Uh, but at the end of the day, we also have to serve the victims and the survivors. Ambassador Baga, thank you for that. So um, I like what you mentioned that uh, I don't obviously like that part that we are still chasing the bad guys, but it seems like we will continue to do that. But having that approach and it's encouraging to know that from a government organization, the openness to understand and realize that it's not them alone and which is why we do need a lot of private organizations, someone like a British Asian Trust, many others, in order to look at it in a holistic way and go at it from all different angles to address it. Which actually brings me to a related question for Richard. Like in, in um, South Asia, you are actually working with the local governments there to do all the work on the ground. Could you talk a bit about that, please? Yeah, let, let, let me first of all just echo the, the, the exactly what um, the, the ambassador said. It's the, the only way of dealing with these problems and these issues is to bring uh, as many people as you can together to work in a holistic way. Um, I, I, I think, unfortunately, very often in the, in, the, in the charity sector, historically, people have tended to deal with the, the problem after it's become a problem and they'll look at how do you, how do you help people who need help um, rather than looking at the real causes of, of an issue. Um, and so you have to look holistically with something like child trafficking in, in, in India, where unfortunately the scale of it is just enormous. You cannot just do, for example, rescues of children. You have to look holistically. You have to look at supply chains. You've got to look at the private sector. You have to look at prevention. You have to look at how, how you work with the, with the government um, and so on. So, Jaspreet, you specifically asked about working with the government. I mean, you know, you know we, we believe absolutely that in order to affect long-term sustainable change, we must complement and strengthen the government mechanisms, the local government mechanisms, and so on, rather than setting up parallel systems. Um, we, we've been working on a very large program in Jaipur, um, in Rajasthan, which is, and, and the aim of that program is to make Jaipur a child labour-free city. And unfortunately, as I'm sure some of you may know, there is a lot of child labour in Jaipur. It's the it's the trinkets and the jewellery capital of India and um, unfortunately, the children with very small hands um, are, are, are often the people that are um, kidnapped, uh, trafficked to Jaipur, to the workshops, to, to, to work in, 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 in those factories. Um, and what we've been doing is working really closely. Uh, we, yes, there are some of our teams that, and the partner organisations that do rescues and return kids and, and support them back with their families. But as I said, working with the, 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 the local government systems, the judiciary, the police and so on is, is absolutely crucial. And we've been working, doing exactly that, working with the police, working with the judicial systems um, to strengthen the prosecution of traffickers and, and employers. Um, we've had caseworkers who've helped to bring strong evidence against traffickers. Uh, we've been petitioning the courts to use video testimony from child survivors. 
rather than in-person evidence, which which has been accepted. Uh, and we've been working to capacity build and sensitize uh, judges and the police and, and so on. And all of this um, over the past year has resulted in a record six convictions for traffickers, four of them for life imprisonment. So up until 18 months ago, there hadn't been any convictions for traffickers. In the last year, there's now been six convictions and four of them for, for, for uh, sent to prison for life. So by changing and working with and strengthening those local infrastructures, working with the local government, the judiciary, the police and so on, that is the way to affect the long term systemic change that we really want to be bringing about. Richard, thank you for that. And uh, you brought up something very interesting on supply chain, which I've, I know I've heard you talk about this before. I've heard Ambassador DeBarga speak about it as well. And would love to know, I mean, right now in America, when you say supply chain, everyone's thinking of shortage of goods. But obviously, we are talking of supply chain related to human slavery so uh, since you're already talking, could you talk a bit on that as well, Richard? You were talking of, I believe you want to create transparency in supply chains. Yeah, so, so as I hopefully conveyed, our approach is really based on partnering with people. Um, and in this case, say partnering with the private sector. So, so working together to try and enable and affect change within that, that, that sector rather than, um, you know, campaigning and, you know, from the outside. Um, and again, uh, I'll use the example of in, in, in Jaipur, where we've been working with local producers to map out supply chains and document any practices within those changes, within those chains that need to be changed. Um, on, fi on finding cases of child labour or other equally bad, if there are other bad practices, we then work with those companies to address the changes and, and bring about the changes that need to be brought about. So, for example, we provide educational opportunities to families of employees, making sure that their children um, are enrolled and stay in school. We, we can and, and we conduct regular announced and unannounced audits of, of suppliers. Um, and what we're finding is this greater compliance helps to reduce demand for child labour and also helps producers clean up their supply chains enabling them to both meet global compliance requirements and market themselves as clean providers. Thank you. Ambassador Baker, I know you've talked of supply chains as well. Could you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's, if, if I could, maybe switching a little bit from kind of what the problem is, although the problem is very much you know, that tainted, slave tainted goods, whether it's, uh, some of the things that we've talked about, uh, already today that might be coming out with child labor or even child slave labor, um, or, uh, things that are coming out with prison labor, uh, especially from the Uyghur Autonomous Zone, uh, and, um, other areas. Um, but I think there's also that notion of kind of what can, can, um, foundations, what can philanthropists, uh, and what should people be doing? Um, I think that one of the things that we always ha have to be very careful about, and I was glad uh, that uh, Sir Richard um, kind of laid out uh, the process by which uh, they're doing their work, because it's exactly what we'd like to see, um, is this very careful um, approach um, to empower 
the local and state uh, governmental actors, the people who actually are the ones who should be um, using, for lack of a better term, the state monopoly on uh, violence or the state monopoly on uh, the law. Um, we've seen um, well-intentioned uh, non-governmental organizations based in the United States and elsewhere um, who have created a lot of mischief um, and wreaked a lot of havoc um, under the guise of doing anti-trafficking work uh, from a rescue perspective uh, around the world. And they come in um, sometimes uh, claiming to have been you know, former SAS or former U.S. Special Forces or others uh, who had no mission uh, fighting human trafficking, uh, but uh, basically say that that uh, qualifies them to bust down doors uh, and uh, drag people out. Many times uh, in South in Southeast Asia, it's been uh, folks who did not want to be dragged out uh, of wherever they were working or, or what have you. So that notion of very careful work, how does one do supply chain work? How does one do business intelligence? How does one look at uh, money laundering or other things like that um, without becoming kind of this, uh, for lack of a better word, great white savior, um, rescuer um, type of, of situation? And I think it's with that kind of long-term uh, respect, working with the leaders, uh, working with survivor communities, uh, and really um, backing their play, um, rather than necessarily coming in to, to bust down doors uh, or what have you. I think that the supply chain work uh, that's inter- that's very interesting right now that's going on, um, really the transparency movement over the last few uh, years, certainly the last decade, whether it's the California Supply Chain Transparency Act, whether it's the UK uh, law and, and now the Australian law that follows up, or whether it's the related issues around uh, due diligence in, in broader human rights uh, things that we see with the French law or some of the proposals uh, in the EU right now. Um, it's basically trying to say, you know, get this information out so that people can do something with it. So whether it's the Business and Human Rights Center, whether it's uh, Transparentum, whether it's the folks over at Liberty Shared, you now have a number of organizations that are doing the really hard work. They're linking up where that palm oil is coming from. They're looking at the shipping manifests. They're trying to figure out who are the insurers of the boats uh, that turn out to have all of that uh, uh, slavery uh, that is rampant in the Pacific uh, seafood uh, long-line trawlers. Um, it's not just about who is the captain, who's abusing the, the Indonesian or um, Filipino men. It's who are the owners? Trace it back up to Taiwan. Trace it back up to, to Korea. Um, but also, who's insuring it? Who are the financiers? Where's the money coming from? Um, those are tools that I think a lot of folks uh, have used, whether it's for uh, counterterrorism, whether it's uh, money laundering in, in the other contexts, um, such as organized crime. Uh, but traditionally haven't necessarily been using uh, for human trafficking. And I think that what that ends up doing is it incentivizes the companies to then uh, start thinking of this as a compliance issue and getting their own lawyers um, involved. So they're looking at cleaning up their own supply chains. At the end of the day, though, it's going to take a uh, reassessment of how procurement gets done. It's going to take a reassessment of how buying gets done. Um, and it's going to, frankly, take a reassessment of how much corruption uh, lead companies in the West are going to accept two and three tiers down uh, in their supply chain. 
Um, so I think it's, we're all in this together. Um, and if we can support each other and if we, and if we can place those philanthropic investments, uh, and, uh, support on the groups that are actually uh, doing the hard work, um, maybe you don't always hear their names, um, but they're the ones who, uh, Interpol turns to, they're the ones who the FBI, uh, or, uh, Scotland Yard turn to, um, when they, uh, come across the transom with the information about palm oil, cotton, etc. Thank you. Um, actually, I just have a follow-up question on that. You uh, have also created the incredible gold standard for anti-trafficking. What is that? Does that exist? Uh, what exactly does it entail? Well, I think that the, you know, the, there's two things if you were going to you know, say, and we don't have, you know, I don't have a stamp or anything like that that, that I can give people. Um, but, you know, I think that the, that when you really think about, you know, kind of based on the reporting that the United States did over, over the last 21 years now, um, against the standards, the international standards for, um, combating trafficking in persons as articulated by the uh, 2000 trafficking in persons law here in the United States, but also through uh, the Palermo Protocol at the UN. Um, the gold standard really is a, a country that is following what we call the 3P paradigm, where prevention, protection, and prosecution end up being co-equal. It's not just the state's interest in punishing that criminal. It ends up being protection of the victims, which also includes not deporting them um, and incorporating them into your society. Um, if you If you find somebody who is... You know, cleaning a, a house in Kuala Lumpur, um, you know, who thought she was going to be, you know, having a, a good job in a garment factory and came down from uh, Cambodia and was locked up for three or four years. She has already, for instance, she has already contributed to Malaysian society. Um, and the way to deal with her is to actually transition her into being able to be part of that society rather than simply jailing her and deporting her for working in a job that she wasn't authorized to. So first of all, there's that 3P paradigm, prevention, protection, and prosecution. And then secondly, um, there's something that we call the victim-centered approach, um, which is making your decisions based on the needs of the survivors. Um, helping them, everything has to be about helping them from going to active, traumatized victim to survivor, and then turning around and, and having that feedback from the survivor community inform everything that we end up doing. So I think that if, you, if you've got an effort um, that you can say is truly uh, looking to advance the 3P paradigm um, and is victim-centered, then I think that at that point you're really looking at a gold standard effort. Um, I know we've got a few minutes left and I already have so many more questions, but I'll ask you one last question to both of you. Uh, obviously you're both incredibly talented you've both got great resumes I didn't even go through everything or that's all I would have read in, an, in half an hour but what motivated for Richard I'll start with you what motivated you to be part of this NGO you have had a stellar career you could have done anything and, and Ambassador Bagal I'll ask you the same question after that and the reason I ask you that is because unlike any non-profit being in something like this, it takes an emotional toll on you. You know, you see a child hurt. It's different. 
So I'd love to know more because we want more people like you in this world. So Richard, do you want to take that one first? <laughs> okay, well, I'm, I'm delighted you've come to the conclusion that I'm really talented because you, you hardly know me, but I'll, I'll definitely pass that on to all of my colleagues, none of whom would agree, I'm sure. Um, I, I would say, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've spent um, the best part of 30 years working in the, the not-for-profit sector um, with, a, with a desire, ultimately, very simplistically, to make the world a better place. You know, that's why, why those of us who are in the sector are in it. I, I think we want to change the world. Um, it, that, that, there's, there's nothing that, that's more horrific than, than child trafficking and child labor and forced child marriage. You know, it totally destroys lives. And I, I think if you, if you want to be, um, in the, in this fight against poverty and disadvantage and, making the world a better place, you've got to try and deal with some of the most difficult, extreme and challenging issues. Um, and for me, the, this was one of the big programs of the British Asian Trust, uh, together with other programs like mental health, for example, which is another huge challenge. Um, and so if you want to be doing something to make things better, um, then dealing with issues like this is is challenging, but it's incredibly motivating as well. Um, and I just, I, I just finished, you know, linking to the point that the, the other question that you, you mentioned, of course, it can take a, to, a, a, you know, take a toll on you. It's, I was in Jaipur a couple of years ago, just before the, um, the COVID outbreak. And I, I met, uh, in one of our partner organizations, uh, a young boy who was six years old who had been rescued. And it turned out that, um, he had spent six months having his hand nailed to the floor every night because he'd been trying to escape. You know, this was a six-year-old kid who'd had his hand nailed to the floor every night. And when you have children yourself, like I do, and you compare the worlds and the lives that they've had, just by the good fortune of birth to a, a small boy, six years old, who's been nailed to the floor, it, it's, it's disgusting. And if you feel that you can play a role in doing something about that at a strategic level, um, there's nothing, nothing more motivating. Yeah, and I'd, <clears throat> I'd second that. In fact, I, I jumped off video for a second to go over to the other part of my office and grab this. This is a piece of construction paper that was written, for those of you who don't speak Spanish, it basically says, um, with love and thanks from your friends. Um, these are 56 deaf and hearing impaired Mexican nationals who were lured to the United States with promises of good jobs and a better life, um, only to be put out uh, on a begging ring uh, in New York City in the, the streets and subways. And for three years, they were out there, and almost everybody in New York saw them. And nobody actually stopped to ask them um, if they were okay. Um, and we discovered them um, because they themselves found uh, a way to write a note with the help of an American deaf person um, and were uh, able to bridge the language gap. Um, and the things that I learned from them, um, the things that we then took and put into the new law in 2000, the things that we took to the UN to get the, the trafficking protocol, um, they all start and stop with people like them, uh, the survivors themselves. Uh, and so when I get down about uh, either the trauma that I'm seeing or that I'm taking on, what I realize is that I'm giving a voice to people like them, uh, folks who for so long think that they thought correctly that they didn't have a voice uh, here in America or around the world. Um, so the, the ink is fading on 
this little thing, um, but my memory and the things that drive me uh, from them and their example uh, certainly does not fade. That's incredible. Thank you. Uh, and I know we're nearing the end of time. So thank you so much, but I also want to take a moment to thank Mark Sainer in 3621 for always putting the spotlight on this. And Sir Richard Hawkes, Ambassador Baka, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Come join our 361 firm community of investors and thought leaders. We have a lot of events created by the community as we collaborate on investments and philanthropic interests. Join us.